Good morning, Shelton. It's good to be with you once again. Uh, I'm going to warn you in advance, like I do every single time, I'm going to talk fast. And so uh, for those of you guys uh, who haven't had your coffee, maybe perhaps you can go get some. Uh, it is good to be back with you all. I just want to give a couple quick things. Uh, so since Bill asked about the coast, uh, there's a saying that uh, people used to say. So they said, the, the east is the beast. The West is the best. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm just giving you a saying. Uh, I will say this. One of the kind of cultural differences between the West and the East Coast is this. Uh, we don't do cornhole out West. And so I got to say this. <laughs> That's a cultural thing in and of itself by hearing it, but it's been fun nevertheless. Anyhow, let me just kind of dive in if you don't mind. Uh, I love the series that you guys are going through here at Shelton Church of Hope, uh, Strangers Living in the Margins. I'm a big fan of, of both the topic and also the passages that are all throughout the book of, of 1 Peter. Um, I think, and here's the reason why, because as a church, we've kind of lo- lived under this kind of disguise that we thought that we were the majority, that we were in Christendom, but we are in fact post-Christendom, and we perhaps it would have been better if we woke up about 20 years ago, um, because that would have helped us as believers and as churches uh, to live more properly. This idea to be able to say that, again, churches, believe it or not, thrive in the margins rather than being in the majority. If you take a look both from the early church to where we are now, if actually, if you look at the history of mission altogether, it would basically boast and tell you that. So if I can encourage you, church, uh, we're headed in that way, uh, but let's not be alarmed. Let's not fret. Let's be encouraged. Let's lean into that. And also, in particular, let's be, let's be faithful in our engagement of it. One of the ways that I've sought to do that, if you don't know, so I try to wear many hats. I'm actually a resident here in Upper Dublin. I actually live right down the street. I could actually run by here if I really wanted to. Um, but in addition to that, I also wear a hat um, by being on the Upper Dublin School Board. Uh, I will tell you, that venture was one that was fascinating for a lot of reasons. Here you have a conservative Asian-American pastor uh, stepping into the political forays. But all that to say is this. When I stepped in there is really being in the margins. You couldn't be like obligatory Christian, right? So for example, even though I wanted to, and I actually still do, um, pray, for example, before every single meeting, um, I just simply pray under my mouth. And I simply am cognizant of the fact that you can be salt and light in places in which you necessarily can't be, again, forthright of your faith. I can go and do things, for example, like look to all 4,200 students of ours and actually try to champion, again, their values to believe that every one of our students, regardless of all different factors, that they have dignity, value, and worth. That's the Imago Deo language. And just to kind of quickly just highlight one thing, in my work of equity, that's actually the same phrase that I use, dignity, value, and worth of every single one of our students. And so I've used this verse, Esther 4.14, as my theme verse on this. And I want to encourage you as a church. In the book of Esther, reads this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And again, when I came on, in particular, was voted onto the board, this was my, my mentality. How can you do it in such a way where, again, God gets the glory? And if you know the book of Esther, a couple of quick things. I won't teach on Esther. We'll get to 1 Peter. Is It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. And yet his fingerprints are everywhere. It's the only book in the Bible where, secondly, in particular, when the Jews were in exile, right, that they were actually still able to have that canonical book because everyone thought, oh, it's a safe book. And so when they were in the midst of persecution, they said, wow, this is so encouraging. This is giving us hope amid a time in which we perhaps they felt like they didn't have hope. 
And so I commend the book to you. I also commend you to leading into, uh, leaning into those margins because, again, church, this is where God allows us perhaps to thrive and that God gets the glory. Today, we're looking at the witness of a godly family. We're looking at 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's not quite as, as elaborate as the previous topics I've done here from this pulpit, uh, but let's have some fun, in particular, as we talk about wives, husbands, and the witness of a godly family. Would you hear now a reading of God's word? Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward endorments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God and used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Would you bow with me now as we hear God's word this morning? Heavenly Father, as we do come, would you give us ears to hear that we would not hear the words of a man, but Father, again, we would hear your voice. And to know, Father, that as we sing, that we indeed have living hope, that, Lord, you are not dead, but you are still alive. You still, Father, speak to your people. You still call men, women, and children to, faith, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. We pray that, Father, in particular, as your word would say, that the grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of the God will stand forever. So today, Father, may it bear much fruit for the sake of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Again, it's been a joy to be able to come and speak to you, uh, Chelton, in different forms. If you don't remember, the first time I did come to you was actually at a men's breakfast. And then I got to do a, a topic on diversity, uh, which, by the way, was really fun and fascinating. And I got to speak, I think, with a lot of passion to something that I really believe in. And then a couple of months ago, uh, I was at Men's Advance because, again, they don't retreat. But it was a great time just to be uh, with the men of this church and to be able to kind of encourage them. And again, I just want to encourage the men, if you haven't gone, it's a great opportunity for you to get connected. And now, of all the topics, I get this passage. And so I got to say, it's like shifting gears in so many different ways. Uh, but let me tell you why I think, you know, at first I was a little reticent to be able to say, okay, I got chosen a passage. And again, as Becca said, it's kind of a passage where it's hard to pick praise songs when it says, wives submit to your husbands. And, and husbands, right, love your wives to a certain extent. Uh, and yet she did a great job because it gets us to Jesus. But here's the reason why I think some of us would be like, oh, we almost want to cringe at this passage. So women, Wives, in particular, you look at this word, and I know perhaps more on the younger side, you might say, oh, submission. I'm already checked out. I just don't want to go there. That's a word that just seems archaic. It's a word that makes me feel like, man, why can't this church just get more modern? Why can't we almost even erase this, perhaps, from the word of God? Men or husbands, here's the truth, right? We just simply don't want to talk about marriage, right? So it's kind of one of those things, we, and I'm just confessing my own thing. Uh, you know, whenever I had to go to marriage counseling, it wasn't one of those things I was like, yes, sign me up. And yet it's one of those things oftentimes we need to do. And there's some of us in this room who perhaps are not even married. So you're like, uh, what is this going to have to do with me? Some of you perhaps might be widowed. And so again, the relevance of it might be something that you feel like isn't really that relevant to you. 
But here's where the beauty of this passage is, and I would say this, is that it gets us to the heart of Jesus for the church, which means it's for all of us. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but keep that in mind, that the passage today is for all of us to hear. Every dot and iota is for you in this room. When I originally was given this text, I was actually going to use my own sermon title, which was House Rules, and let me kind of quickly teach on this. If you look throughout the letters of the Bible, in particular in the New Testament, what we'll see is that oftentimes the author will give house rules. And what do we mean by that? For example, in the book of Ephesians, we'll see Paul lays out and says, the church of Ephesus ought to be given these particular rules so that its house should function in this way. And those house rules are functions in which basically it says to the church, you are different and like no other. And again, I think one thing for the church to be reminded of is that this, in particular in 1 Peter 3, was given for the church through Peter's writing for the church of God that it might be instructed so that indeed that the church might stand out as a witness, that families, households, might stand out as witnesses. Now, here's where the kind of the rubber meets the road. The unfortunate reality is that this may not be true for the church. If you don't know, statistically, unfortunately, right, we could say the family is witness, but just statistically, we say that the, the rate of divorce is as high amongst Christians as it is among non-Christians, as a startling rate. You would think, oh, good God, gospel-believing Christians. Of course, they're not going to go down that path. We typically see that Christians, right, equally the same in terms of are involved in aspects of brokenness. At the men's advance, I've shared, I come from a broken family. So we see, for example, the rampant issues of fatherlessness, abuse, and all these things are out there by Christians and non-Christians alike. The very nature of abuse right now is coming out so much in regards to the church that people are saying it's statistically as high in the church as it is outside the church. Some of the times, the reason why perhaps even when we look at a passage like this, the problem is that we also believe lies are fed to us by media. And so the question I ask is, who really has your ear, who's informing you in regards to the witness of the family? Is it God? Is it Scripture? Or is it all these other voices that are simply informing you? The book of 1 Peter is fascinating because why? Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians who are suffering under persecution. They are sent into diaspora, which is that they are in the margins of the places in which they are in. And as such, they are to live as witnesses. And in particular, one of the things that Peter highlights now in this passage is that the institution of marriage or family ought to stand as a witness. So that the, and that's really why Peter writes it. It says, but examination for all of you here today is this, is how is it that family, now again, it could be your individual family, or it could be the family of the church of of Chelton, really stands out as a witness. Before I dive into the text, if I can, we're going to speak about the mystery of marriage, which is this. One of the things, you look at this passage, you're going to realize that there's six verses that are dedicated in particular to wives, and there's this only one tiny verse dedicated to husbands. Now, again, it doesn't take much to be able to say, I, I, I cry, this isn't fair, right? Um, and here's the thing, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, in particular verse 32, after Paul had exhorted the church to say, Husbands or wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He actually gives this phrase, and he says, Look, you all think I'm talking about husbands and wives, but here's the reality. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. And so I want you to hear this and see this. So as much as we're today in 1 Peter 3 going to examine how Peter addresses husbands and wives, I want you to also know that what he's directly looking at, he's looking at the church. And so, for example, when it says wives, you can easily kind of, the men can check out and say, well, that's not for me. I'm actually going to challenge you and say, well, no, it's for you. Because why? In Ephesians 5 says what? You, the church, are the bride. You're the, you're the feminine. 
You're the wife. And so when Peter is even addressing the church here, all of us in this room should peek up and say, well, that's for me. That's the mystery of the, of the marriage, right? That's Christ and the church put on display. And so that's my prayer, church, is that as we look at these passages, or this passage today in particular, is that you would see it from that light. So what that said is this, the apostle Peter wants to have the families as a witness. And again, I think in this day and age, there's the encouragement for the church to go forward and say, yes, we recognize that both your individual families as well as, again, the church as a family to be put on the witness. So how then does he exhort the church to do so? There's three things I want to highlight. First is this word submission, because I think there's so much miscommunication or misunderstanding with respect to it. Secondly, it's in what we do. And lastly, it's in who we are. Follow with me how each of these are done. One of the things we see here in 1 Peter 3 is that twice the Apostle Peter uses this word submission. So it's almost as if we don't want to miss that. Even in the earlier text, we see that the Apostle Peter uses it. In chapter 2, he reminds again that the church ought to submit themselves to rulers or emperors. We see again, even in the passage prior to this in Ephesians and in 1 Peter 2, slaves to be submissive, right, ultimately to their masters. And whoever preached last, I'm sure, did a great job on that. And here's the problem, right? Inherent to our heart is none of us wants to submit so although, again, this is addressed to the wives, this is for all of us to consider. Every single one of us in this room, when told to do something, we simply don't have the inclination to say, you know what, I want to submit to that thing. I will yield and do these things. We are much, for example, in the vein of Judges 21, 25, that everyone sought to do what was right within their own eyes. Or it's what I reminded the advanced group that when we were there. If you go back to Genesis 2 and 3, the, 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 the playbook that the enemy played upon humanity from the very beginning of time is the same playbook he plays upon us, and we still fall prey to it, which is what? Did God really say that? And are you willing then to submit to such things? And that's the problem. Is it not inherent to all of us if you're honest with yourself? When we say, for example, wives, submit to your husbands, some of us will say, oh, yeah, you know, there's a problem with femininity today. They simply don't want to submit. But it's not just within women. It's the proneness of all of our hearts. Very few of us in this room will ever be able to say, yes, I want to yield. I'm willing to submit. In particular, I'm willing to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm willing to submit to what his word reveals and what his word says. And the problem with even the very inherent nature of that is that we make terrible gods, and yet we continue to try to function as such. So much, in fact, that when we take a look at the word of God, what we don't believe and what I'm convinced of is what Psalm 16, 6 says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You see, so what the apostle Peter is getting at, even in the very first verse, is something wrong with all of our hearts, we don't trust him. We're not willing to yield to him. It's kind of much in the debate of, did God really say? Did God really say I ought to submit? The answer is absolutely yes. And yet we choose not to. Or perhaps we could rehash the debates of old of this idea to say, well, God, you can be my savior, but could you be my Lord, my master, the one in whom I yield all things unto? So Peter is getting at and saying the heart of the witness of the church actually is connected to our desire and our willingness to actually to submit to his lordship. 
The second thing that we see is this, is that Peter actually gets at the next part of our witness is what we do, which is all these imperatives that we see within the passage. And what do I mean by imperatives? Here's the thing, right? So following this idea of submission, which is tied to what the imperatives is, Peter then goes into instructions and says, here then in the institution of marriage, here's how you ought to conduct your marriage. Here are the things in which you should do. And so, for example, there'll be a heart check for the wives and for the husbands to say, do you do such things? In particular, I will argue this, even in relationship to God, the question is, do you do such things? Ultimately, wrestling with this fact that at the very end is that not what we do, but ultimately what we are in Christ that makes us who we are. But all that's to say is this, let's follow through with these imperatives. What are the imperatives that are actually found within this passage? I'm going to just try to highlight them as much as I can. And there are these things, right? The first thing that Peter gets at is in verse 1. He says, hey, if any of you in your institution of marriage happen to be married to an unbeliever, how are you going to win them over? Well, don't win them over by nagging, but in fact, what does he say? He says, so if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see purity and reverence of your life. And so Peter is getting at, think about it, the natural desire would be what? If I want to convert my husband, well, let's go and, you know, bash the gospel down their life, down their throat. Let's kind of win them over by nagging them as much as possible. And think about this, right? I will say this as a husband, but I also say this as one who's done pastoral ministry now for 23 years. No one has ever been won over with the gospel by nagging, by more commands. And Peter is reminding the church in the same way, right, for the wives. If you are in that situation, and let me kind of perhaps pause and say this to some of the women in this room. If you are in that situation, in not the ability to, again, want to convince them by more laws or perhaps, again, more rules, but again, what Peter reminds us is this aspect of inner character, and he elaborates even going forward, right? He says, your beauty should not be that of outward endowment. Really, in essence, right, in much of Peter's imperatives here, what he's getting at, believe it or not, are countercultural. Even when Peter's hearers would have heard this, the women would have been, wow, really? That's how you want the church to be? Or maybe perhaps even you in this room today would say, wow, really, God? That's what you want us to be? So notice what Peter gets at in the verses following. He says, look, beauty defined in the church in Peter's time could have been easily done with the external endowment, right? Whether it be fine jewelry or hair braiding or whatever it might have been. In the same exact way in today's world, we can say, what does beauty look like? Well, it's in what we wear. It's the jewelry. It's, it's our you know, hairdress. It's whatever it might be. But Peter is getting at it and says, no, it's not what is external, but what in fact is internal. I remember when I was dating one man, my wife, and we just celebrated 20 years by God's grace. One of the things I remember when, when I was courting her was to actually really wrestle with this in terms of the word of God. Do I really believe this to be true? As I will say, not in my own self-righteousness, but I will tell you what drew me to her was one time I came back from a class and she was praying. And she wasn't just praying because she had needed to pray. She was praying because she wanted to pray. And I said, there is a woman that prays and fears the Lord. There is a woman that I can trust. And so I pursued her. Peter is getting at saying, not external beauty, but internal beauty. This idea that we don't simply cover up ourselves, but again, we look internally as well. The last thing, again, that he gets at, really in terms of an imperative for women, are these. For in the same way, the holy women of put their hope in God, used to adorn this, they submitted to their own husbands, like Sarah. And he's getting at this idea, notice in terms of how these get tied together. And I want to make sure you see this. Submission, hope, and this idea of the removal of fear or fearlessness. And again, I want to make this address specifically to wives, but I also want to address all of us because I think they are tied together. Not to say I missed this in the first service, but when I talked in the first service, I was rather fast, but here we go. Follow with me. To submit to the word of God, right, as we take it to be, to be able to say that we trust God at his word, 
leading us to this idea that indeed we have hope. Because here's the thing, right? If we are the gods of our own life, and when things go awry, don't you naturally feel a sense of hopelessness? If you don't trust in God and take him at his word, I would think any one of us would be hopeless. Because why? Because we know our limitations. We know the things that we cannot do. And so you see, submission leads to this great understanding of hope. But the other part of that, it leads also to this aspect of fearlessness. Because if we know that we can trust God at his word, if we know that we provided this great hope that's provided within his word, then the last result is equally the same, which is that we can go forward in this idea that we do not need to fear. Because why? If God is for us, who can be against us? And let me encourage, because I think this would resonate not only with the women, but let me go there, and also the men, but the women in particular. Aren't there a lot of times, even within your marriage, that these very understandings of these emotions, hopelessness and fear, the antithesis of what Peter gets at, often fill your marriages? Because perhaps sometimes what we don't do is to go to the very beginning of simply saying is that I'm willing to bow my knee to you, Lord Jesus. The last thing here in terms of an imperative of what we do is actually addressed to the husbands. And what I want you to get as we look at this is this, is just look at what's given in particular because it's so countercultural in Peter's time. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs. And each one of these things, right again, as Peter's hearers would have listened to this or read this, they would have said, wow, really? Our culture doesn't say, well, let's consider women consider their opinion, consider their worth, consider their dignity, consider who they are. And Peter is giving this challenge to the husbands. Consider them as your wife. Treat them with respect. Men in Peter's time would have often viewed women as property. And Peter is getting at and saying, no, the church, you are distinct and different. Your values and your morals become so different because why? Because you treat them with respect as the weaker partners. And lastly, this idea of inheritance, that they are heirs with you. So likewise, compounded this idea that if they are union in Jesus with you, that they too become heirs of the covenant of grace with you. And so as such, you treat them this idea that they are in fact valuable. And again, just as it was for the church, so likewise it is, I think, for the church, the church in Peter's time. So likewise it is for the church even in our time that we would hear this. The church in particular and the institution of marriage was to be so countercultural to the world that it became a witness, an intrigue for the world to say, why do they live as such? And before I get to my last point, let me argue this, that it comes because of the fact of their identity in Jesus Christ because they first and foremost are the church, the bride, because they are the beloved church of Christ, the beloved bride of Christ. Their marriages are fashioned as such because they get it from Jesus first. The last point I will make is this, is to understand that the witness that Peter is getting at for the family is who we are. Now, a lot of times when we think about these words, this idea of imperatives, or to say commands, we can kind of take to say, okay, pastor, I get this. From here, I'm going to go and simply do these things. I'm going to go and try to be submissive. I'm going to go and try to, you know, hold on fastly to the word of God. I'm not going to have my beauty, and so I'm not going to go buy jewelry, which is not what Peter is getting at. I'm not going to go buy jewelry or fancy dresses anymore. I'm going to simply just try to calm an internal spirit, whatever it might be. None of those imperatives can bring salvation. None of the things in which we can do can earn God's grace. 
And one of the things about this passage, believe it or not, that I think we need to be reminded of is this idea of the witness of the family is not for us to be in perfection. If I can use perhaps a comical analogy, I think some of the times, and I hope you're, I actually was a Simpsons fan, so I hope you don't get stumbled by that, but all I have to say is this. You know, the quintessential Christian family in some people's modern eyes is the Flanders, right, in which they're kind of put on display, and you say to yourself, is that the witness of the family? This idea of perfection. This idea that they don't get mad and, and perhaps what it might be. Or is it perhaps this other idea, say it's understanding who we are, which is that we're simply sinners saved by grace. So let me kind of do this in an analogy. So I'm a big missions guy. Uh, I love short-term missions. I would have been perhaps an overseas missionary uh, if God didn't call me to church planting. But with that said is this. So oftentimes when you go to these missions places, uh, you have to come up with skits uh, that you can't use language, right? Or you can't use a lot of language, especially if you don't know the language. And so one of those happens to be the chicken skit. Now, again, I don't know if you know it. And so Shep is going to go, I'm sure, on a lot of missions trips. But all that to say is this. When you go on these things, right, a chicken skit uh, basically describes the gospel in this way, right? Um, so I'm not going to act it. I'm just going to kind of quickly reenact it. So follow with me. This is how it works, right? Someone will come on stage and they'll simply pretend to be a chicken. They'll go, yep, yep, right? And so one person just simply says, oh, hi, who are you? He says, oh, I'm a chicken. So the person says, hmm, you look like a person. Why are you a chicken? He says, oh, I'm a chicken because I flap my wings and, you know, I can, you know, talk like a chicken. I can, I can you, know, you know, talk like a chicken. And then every once in a while, I'll actually give them an egg and they'll say, I can even have an egg like a chicken, right? And whatever it might be. And so like, oh, interesting. They go off stage, that's the first thing. The second act is what? So that person comes on stage and he's like, I'm a plane. And so the person asks, oh, well, who are you? I'm a plane. So why are you a plane? He says, oh, because I can have wings and, and I can make sounds like a plane and I can go around. The person says, oh, okay. So the last scene, is third act, is this. The person comes on, scene, on stage and he has a Bible and he's going around and he's simply praying. So the person comes up and says, oh, what are you? I'm a Christian. Oh, why are you a Christian? He says, oh, because I read the Bible and pray. And then the skit usually ends with something that's like, it's not what we do that makes us a Christian. It's our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us a Christian. Something to that loose effect, right? And as profound or as simple as that may seem, to most countries, believe it or not, that's actually a, a very profound message because it gets at the heart of the gospel, which is not this performance. And by the way, don't get me wrong. Word and prayer are not bad things. But those imperatives do not, or those commands to want to engage those things, never make us right with God. No matter how many times you can go and read scripture, or how many times you can have hours and hours upon prayer, I'm Korean American, my, my ethnic group prays a ton. None of those things, right? can bring justification on this idea that we are right before God. And one of the things here in this passage that we get at is that Peter is getting at is this tension, which is to say, what then is the witness of the family? Is this the idea of the witness of the family that we go and we put the perfect family on display and we say, that's it? Or rather instead, do we do what I think, what Peter got at, which is to actually explain the gospel in the way that he explained it to the women of the church, which is to say this. Remember when he said, look, don't let your beauty... Don't let the witness, you could say, be that of external things, but let it be of the internal, unfading, quiet spirit that's within you. 
And perhaps let me illustrate it in the way that Jesus did, in particular in Luke chapter 11. If you hear, have it there on the screen, you can see. And the Lord Jesus said to him, and now you Pharisees, you, clean, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and weaknesses, wickedness. And do you remember what Jesus was getting? He says, hey, I'm interacting with all you Pharisees, and here's the problem. You go around, and what you want to do is you think, I can just be externally all good. I can put up my mask. I can have a cup and an external veneer say, hey, you know what? The outside is absolutely clean and polished. Look at that. And what Jesus does, he basically kind of x-rays their hearts and he says, look, I'm not interested in the external. Just like Peter was encouraging the women, I'm not interested in just the external. I'm interested in your heart. I'm interested in all of you. And see, one of the things that we get in terms of this passage that I want to encourage you as we end is this. When you think about the witness of the family, the witness of the family is not for us to be able to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to go forward and just, don't get me wrong, we want to have the outside clean as much as we can. But if you're not concerned with the inside, well, then something perhaps is wrong because imagine it in this way, the same analogy that Jesus gave. If I have a cup and it's full of dirt, I say, I'm going to just pour it. Here, it's a clean cup. I wash the outside, drink from it. Most of you would say, nah, I can't do that. And yet, why perhaps do some of us, in regards to the nature of our faith in Jesus Christ, our identification as Christians, do we like to do that? We come to church. We make sure that we put up the right mask, the right face. We make sure that the outside is clean. But what we don't want people to do is to say, would you look deep inside, see who I really am, see what really goes on within my heart? Even the witness of a family. Some of the times, I think, Christian churches too often, we come in and what do we do? We say, oh, you know what? Like, we can't argue. We got to pretend like we actually like each other. So let's make sure we sit next to each other. We hold hands, whatever it might be. Externally, we need to make sure everything is fine. But when we get back home, it's a train wreck. One of the things when my wife and I were doing pastoral ministry, I found it very uh, almost provocative or perhaps coincidental, uh, but a lot of our arguments happened on Saturday evening. And the reason why I say that is because oftentimes that's when I was busy preparing for a message or kind of get everything tied up for you know, Sunday. And I'd always be like, man, why do these arguments happen on Saturday evening? And then on Sunday morning, you know, I could easily kind of have to want, and I did this perhaps in my earlier years of ministry, I wanted to just kind of almost fake it and say, you know what, everything good is good at home. I can just come up and preach a good, faithful gospel message. But over time, in particular my years here in Philadelphia, I became more confident in my gospel, my gospel understanding. And so oftentimes when we had those arguments on Saturday, on Sunday morning, I would simply come up and say, one man and I were arguing all last night, and today's message, although it may sound great, it's going to come from the pit. And yet I pray that God would bless the preaching of his word. And I'll tell you how, many, how profound it was for so many of our people to be able to say, you know what, they have this pastor. It's a little different. He's not willing to say, you know what, just put up the exterior. He's willing to say, just lay it all there. And in doing so, how much more true and in line is that? Not only with what Peter is getting at here in the passage, for what a faithful witness of the family is, but how much more true in line is that with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So much that in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 
where Paul, the Apostle Paul writes and says this, may this be our boast. Not the boast in our perfection, not the boast in the things that we do perfectly, but what? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Church, when is it the last time when you went forward, you would say again, Lord, not the outside, but my weaknesses as well, everything that is within me, here it is. Jesus, these are the things you died and bled for, and my faith in Jesus Christ justifies me as such, where I need not fear, I need not fret. My prayer for you is this, is that both individually, would you come to your understanding of the gospel in this? As a family, may you be able to be so confident to realize, again, not to put up the veneer, but to be able to say this is exactly who we are as husband and wife. And lastly, as the church, would you as church in, Chelton, Church of Hope, be a family of God that embodies this gospel that says we can come as we are, loved by God as our faithful husband who takes us as we are, that Christ would be glorified. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the, indeed the witness of the family in a day and a time, Lord, where we need the church, the family, to stand out as salt and light. We pray that, Father, you would bless Chelton in their understanding, Father, as they would go forth in such a way to be a beacon of hope, the hope of the gospel. Father, if there are people in this room who in particular have sought to hid themselves from you, perhaps hiding behind a clean exterior, and who have not opened themselves before you to be able to understand their brokenness and their sinfulness before you, to be able to know and understand your grace and love extends to the deepest recesses of who we are, that you love us yet still. While we were still yet sinners, you died for us. Father, if people who have not received that message, Father, we pray that you would open their eyes as such to see it. Father, if there are people in this room who have come in even today with the exterior being clean, wanting to pretend like everything is hunky-dory, and yet inside they're so broken, and yet they're so afraid to perhaps confess it not only before you but even to one another. Father, I pray that you would give them the freedom of the gospel to the Lord indeed that you love them and that you, Father, might call them again to the freedom to be able to confess their brokenness before you. And be with this church, Father, in such a way that it would embody this family. May the individual families as well as the family of Chelton stand as a beacon of the gospel. Bless it. May it shine brightly for the sake of Christ that many would come to know him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.